Dr. Coons, are you familiar with Operation High Jump and the other Antarctic realities that are resulting from that 1946 supposed reality? <laughs> I am not familiar with High Jump specifically, but I am familiar with various ideas about what is going on in Antarctica and why it is a continent to which access is very strictly controlled. All right. So if I if I just I'll outline the story that I ran into and then you yeah. can you can okay. give us reality. So <laughs> our person high jump 1946 or something, right? Did did uh, Chat GPT make this up? I don't know. Uh, they discovered 300 square miles of land without snow and lakes somewhere in Antarctica. 1955, Operation Deep Freeze. They found the dome. That's important. What's the dome about? I don't know. 1959, Antarctic Treaty stopping all independent exploration of Antarctica. 1962, Operation Dominic Fishbowl, where they were launching nukes straight up. And from that, we're supposed to understand. I don't know what it's aliens, right? Aliens. Oh, there was then in, someone commented John Kerry made sure to visit Antarctica before the election or something. And that should make it all make sense. Yeah. And visitations by politicians at key moments in their lives are always part of these theories about Antarctica. I'm not going to claim to know what is happening on Antarctica because, like I said, access and along with access, knowledge are severely restricted about it. What I will claim to know is that this is an area where your model of the world and, and of its history, especially what gets called today in academia, big history, which is when the guy tries to unite things that for modern people are completely separate. That is natural history, what was called natural history, or you might say the the data of the sciences about the past with the study of human history, which for most people is now divided up into small, very small units of very intensive interest. So the Civil War buff who doesn't know anything about the American Revolution or the person who has read multiple books about World War II but knows very little about World War I. Those are just small examples within single centuries or single nation's history of how exclusive and particular people become. Big history tries to fix that. The issue is when someone is claiming to have a conspiracy theory about Antarctica whether he believes in the realm of Agartha, which is part of obviously Hindu mythology, but as of the 19th century, part of certain what are called perennialist or traditionalist strains of European mysticism or European thought, some of which are influential in the Third Reich and some are influential in Mussolini's Italy, but they live outside of that and and live beyond that. Belief in those things is going to affect your sense of, you know, what's inside the earth? Is there any, anything inside the earth? Can I get to that through the poles? That's That's one picture. Another picture is of Antarctica and the Arctic as well as places of eschatological crisis. And that's that's the most common presentation of the poles that you get today. Being neither uh, a believer in Hindu mythology or in the eschatology of climate change, Antarctica and the Arctic are results of the fall. That is that they are on God's earth. God's green earth is what we call it, right? But they are unproductive and unfruitful and hostile to human life. 
So whatever else we can say about them, we don't we we could say that elites who have proven themselves to be obsessed with occult forbidden things before might be obsessed with them for those reasons. So could there possibly be sketchy things going on in the name of assorted governments and military actors and lots of sure. But their existence such as they are is the result of the upending of the former creation or the second Peter calls the world that once was the world that then was by the flood such that we are now broken apart for a time and parts of the earth that God has made for man's habitation and dominion really cannot be subjected to that dominion in a way that is fruitful right now. So that's how I think about Antarctica whatever else that we could say about that or you know is there a a realm that is unfrozen or something <laughs> what do i know but the reason i have my doubts is because i i don't think that the poles are currently there for fruitfulness or dominion to be extended it's it's part of nature groaning waiting for the revelation of the sons of god you hear it here first everybody dr kuhn says antarctica is a hindu myth we're going to be moving on to our, <laughs> to our review of uh, Presidio and yeah. Covenant. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, Presidio Paralysis uh, and your notes. I'm not entirely, you know, heads up on where you're going with that, except my guess would be that one of the weaknesses of a strict hierarchy would be the eventual isolation of the hierarchs into a place where uh, they themselves are distrusting of those below them. And so hesitant to share duty uh, information then ceases to flow and those below afraid of being punished for bad things end up not taking initiative over time leading to what we call bureaucracy uh, and the the status quo but maybe that's not what you had in mind at all and that's just part of the world we live in anyway. no no what you say is is definitely part of what i'm thinking of and what we're doing in this episode is bringing home applying to the groups well known to us particular to us of which we are a part some of the insights that we've had in the previous couple episodes. The reason being that we're presenting Presidio and Covenant as options and not mutually exclusive options. We'd actually like to combine the best of each. And we'll talk about some of that. But the one, the, the place that we want to start is simply by acknowledging that one of the options comes much more naturally to traditionalist Christians, especially Lutherans, than the other Right. So if you look at a lot of American Christianity, its particular shape, sociological form, way of operating, way of extending, way of dying, all of that shows its Anglo-Protestant heritage. It's creative, but it's kind of chaotic. It can change quickly and therefore flourish rapidly, but it can also die quickly and tends to rely too much on present group dynamics and present charismatic leaders. So it's it's part of why America is so productive of internationally significant religious leaders. Even when we were a colony, Jonathan Edwards was kind of punching way above his weight, both in the state church of the Massachusetts colony and the Connecticut colony, as well as punching above our weight demographically within the British Empire. So we're we're good culturally, historically, at producing charismatic figures. The Presidio is not meant to produce charismatic figures. 
And one thing that is a little odd about Lutheran Christianity is that while it operates in an Anglo context in the United States of America, it, it, it is not derived from the creative chaos of the English Reformation, both inside the Church of England, where they end up saying, okay, keep the structure together and we will generally let you do what you want theologically, or outside of the Church of England, which is fine if you're in a stable situation where you control space, such as the Spanish did in you know, much of the what's now the American Southwest and obviously Mexico and Central America and South America. Because when you control space, you can afford not to be terribly creative, right? Because you do have time. <laughs> because the roads and everything else are controlled by you and they're maintained by you. And so that that leads to a certain laziness or a certain lack of urgency, but if you know you have 20 years to do something, then you don't have to rush. And that does lead to a long-term thinking in which Anglo-American Protestants are usually fairly deficient. They like overnight returns, right? And like half our country was settled as a result of gold rushes. And in fact, Virginia was supposed to be a gold rush in the beginning. So they're good at sudden you know, creative chaos. The Presidio doesn't produce that and isn't meant to produce that and isn't for that. And we just want to start out by acknowledging, and I'm not real sure if this is some sort of deep, you know, Habsburg governing pattern, such that it affects both Spanish history and Germanic history. So the Germans, as well as the Nordics and, and other peoples, but they lean very, very, very heavily toward centralized command and control. Let me give you a historical example, and then I'll give you a contemporary example. The historic example is that you do actually have a Lutheran power that colonizes North America, tries to at one time, right? And that is the Swedish colony on the Delaware River, comprising areas in and around really south of what's now Philadelphia, which they don't found, and centered on what's now Wilmington, Delaware, which they call Christiania. So there are there are now Episcopal churches, for reasons that we're going to explain, that are originally Lutheran churches. They're Swedish Lutheran churches. And that, that place gets settled. It largely gets settled. You're usually going to have people who want to do new things, who are somewhat discontented. It largely actually gets settled physically by Finns, who are, as an ethnic group, distinct from the Swedes, but still part of the Swedish, what was called at least by some historians later on, the Swedish Empire at the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century. So they're put there. They may or may not be, you know, the the progenitors, the forefathers of the American log cabin, which is built in the Nordic countries before it's built in America. But when they get there, one big problem they always have is that it's easy to find discontented people to staff this or that thing or to cut down trees or maybe say, oh, you have no land. Do you want to farm? Like, just move to Delaware. It's hard to get people who are comfortable being elites of some kind or some level to do something new. So they constantly have trouble getting governors who will come and stay. And especially they have trouble getting priests. They're called, that's what pastors are called in Nordic Lutheranism. They have trouble getting priests to come and stay. And what that does is that over time, it dissolves the 
intensity of the bonds of the people who have been asked to settle there. So it resembles Spanish settlement in certain ways. They don't try that hard to convert the Indians, not as hard as the Spanish did. But they combine military and ecclesiastical power, bring it together, and try to foster it together. And the problem is it's hard to attract people who don't have it that bad to do something new. One way you can see that this is sort of and baked in to us is by figuring out what happens to that historical example. And that is when you are centered around a certain authority structure and Lutheran Christians can't really be Lutheran without having, for instance, an office of the ministry. People who observe natural law can't really have a government without having someone in charge of the government. We don't end up being anarchists in any strict sense of that word if we're paying attention to history or to natural law or how human groups function. So you're going to have to have some kind of authority that wields that, that military power or wields that ecclesiastical power or authority if you don't like the word power or whatever. Here's the problem. If they don't want to come there, then you end up with effectively a decapitated society. So you just you just don't have leadership. And it, it was actually harder to get priests to come because they don't stand to gain very much by governing a colony, whereas maybe the guy that's governing the colony can benefit financially long-term, even if he ends up leaving eventually. So what happens there is that the Swedes lose <laughs> uh, to the Dutch first, actually. The Dutch conquer them, not the English. Then the English conquer the Dutch. But they lose... And so now you've got Lutheran congregations that can't get a pastor. Stop me if this sounds familiar. And so what happens to these people? Well, eventually they turn to the people who will give them religious care, right? Pastoral care. And that's going to end up being the Church of England in this specific case. So that's how these churches all turn into Episcopal churches eventually is because people are like, well, no one is coming to help us. And this seems pretty good or good enough. Swedish Lutheranism, I guess, is close enough to Anglicanism, and so away they go. And so there is no particularly Lutheran heritage about it, except when sometimes the Swedish monarchs today arrive for certain anniversaries. That's the historical example, because I bring it up for a contemporary example. You can see that the command structure thing is baked in to the way that people think about Lutheranism. I'm saying like culturally, not necessarily theologically, but as a result of Lutheran groups' history, even where we have apparent congregational autonomy or, or synod is advisory or whatever, not to speak of churches where we don't have that, like the Wisconsin Synod, Synod is church in some, some way, right? Which has historically involved how discipline gets carried out. People still want to know what the official position is. They do. They, they want to know what the official position is, and they talk about the central authority like it matters, even where structurally, constitutionally, it doesn't for most purposes. So if you're a Missouri Synod Lutheran, probably what we, what is said and done centrally or even at your district level regionally, it's not that it just, it's not just that it doesn't matter for how the doors are open or when the doors are open or something. It's it's that it it truly is advisory. Even so, right, even if that's all on the books, the history of the central institution and what the central institution is thinking, saying, and doing 
matters a lot to people because almost if you can say it this way, the brand matters a lot to people. Even if it's not supposed to structurally, it, it's it's like reflexive in our people. It's like the practice of confirmation, which has, <laughs> you know, not not a whole lot of scriptural precedent behind it, but it matters a lot to people, right? And so what I'm saying is a, a presidio-like structure is built into Lutheran cultures. And that is something that you simply have to be aware of that if we have a defect, it's not going to be the covenant people style defect of creative chaos, you know, chaos being both good and bad, I guess, in that way. It's going to be paralysis waiting for a centralized authority or a distant authority, in the case of both the Spaniards and the Swedes, a distant authority to inform you of what to do. That could go away. That's not true for everybody. It's not me, my personal instinct, but it is so historically ubiquitous and even culturally visible today. It's just something to be aware of that we are waiting for, if we don't have it, an authorizing authority, an, an authorizing authority. Mm-hmm. So not just an authority, but somebody to say, yes, go ahead with that. You can do that or don't do that to say something. And when and where that doesn't happen whether because it's, you know, they don't think they should do that or in the Missouri Senate, they say, well, it's not our job to do that because our limits on what Senate is supposed to do are strict, all things considered. People still want it. Waiting to be told what to do. And it's in the water so much that if you, uh, my experience is that the, those who do press ahead, uh, see a problem, create a solution, go, uh, within our circles, um, both sides of the worship aisle, uh, they actually, <laughs> they have a little trouble staying inside the, 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 uh, the in crowd. Um, right. and, uh, uh, I guess I, I say that from experience, I, I hope I don't sound bitter on the podcast. Um, right. but, but the black sheep experience is, is pretty for real. And um, I kind of embrace it a little bit, but but it is just this. Like, I mean, from the start, I'm getting like, why are you on YouTube? You don't have a call to be on YouTube. Like that kind of thing. And it's like, well, I, I don't know. They let you put the gospel on YouTube. You know, I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I wasn't waiting to ask someone about it. And right. yet th- that is the the nature of our instinct uh, yeah. as a as a team and if we want right. to think of ourselves then as a a body politic or a a kingdom a, a yeah. militia of faith uh well then we're just sitting here waiting for them to shoot us and that's not good no matter who you think the enemy is i think one thing that you can observe and some of this history is pretty pretty obscure but one thing you can observe and so i'm just talking about american lutherans at this point and I'm really talking about the ones that come from the 19th century onward, because your 18th century ones become so assimilated to Anglo-American Protestantism, they have a completely different set of problems. And I know many of the listeners, because partly because of other work that I've done, are you know nostalgic for a Tennessee Senate that they've never seen. <laughs> that has Anglo-American problems that we're not really talking about here, right? 
<laughs> and those are my problems. So I can I can talk about those another time, but I'm trying to speak about the larger group and the group that really has the most viability as a group. And this issue of of paralysis or the desire to group and then for the group to be instructed, I'm not really praising or damning. I'm just trying to observe that it's there, that people, for instance, want to gather into groups. And the obscure history here is that while many people might know that in the beginning of the Missouri Synod, you have essentially two different colonial projects, one being the Franconians in Michigan that by and large succeeds and is pretty harmonious. That's fostered by Wilhelm Leia, but he never comes here. The other one being the one that for various reasons, is a little more famous in Missouri Senate history, and you can read the book Zion on the Mississippi if you're interested in it, is really kind of like the Mormons. We have a utopian project in the Mississippi River Valley in the 1830s, and it, it fails miserably because the leader fails miserably. You have colonial projects like that, or in colonial New England, those kinds of things would all be called plantations, like Rhode Island and Providence plantations, or God's plantation is what John Cotton called Massachusetts Bay Colony. But they can always, they have a way to form more without necessarily needing utter centralized authorization. We will, even after our Mississippi River Valley group falls apart to the degree that it does, we still continue to have groups like that. So I talked to an elderly pastor whose grandparents and, and his, his mother's side of the family had in the very early 20th century joined a group that was, they were all going to move and found a town in Western Kansas and farm. And if you go back to our Dust Bowl episodes, <laughs> you know how that turned out. <laughs> so these things have consistently happened and have consistently happened around, in the case of Lutherans, charismatic religious leaders, right? I mean, they're pastors and they go through the same system as everybody else, but there's something a little bit different and then people gather around them. That just happens so often. I expect it to happen again. It's probably happening now. That's fine, right? Like I'm not going to say like, oh no, the group shouldn't do that. Like that's about because the group is going to do what it's going to do and what its habits and instincts are. That's okay. What I'm saying is a danger that always happens in that model because it happened with the Spaniards as well as the Swedes, is that it induces paralysis in people who are waiting to take orders. And there's kind of two, two problems with that specific to Lutherans. Number one is Lutherans of all people should recognize the pastor is not an expert on everything. <laughs> and therefore his orders are not really capable of being followed because they're not really capable of being issued on everything. That's a mistake that if you read Zion on the Mississippi, they make with the first leader of the group that will become the, the Saxon part of the Missouri Senate story. And that is Martin Stefan, right? Whatever else he did and whatever else actually happened, and I am a little skeptical about parts of that story, he was trying to issue orders on almost everything. And it was a disaster because an insurance agent knows a lot about insurance. That doesn't mean he knows a lot about you know cutting timber. A pastor knows a lot about the word of God, we hope. <laughs> he doesn't know everything about insurance or cutting timber. So to set one person up as the exclusive authority on everything is unwise. 
The Spaniards didn't do that. I don't want to charge them with that. The Presidio was governed by a military authority. The mission was governed by a religious authority. We have tended to meld the two wherever we have tried to settle as communities before. And especially if we're dealing with a situation where we need our own civic authority of certain kinds because of how the community set up or because the civil authorities themselves are not doing their jobs, to remand all of that authority to one man, whether he's a pastor or not, has always proven unwise, but it happens in the group because the group wants somebody who becomes sort of like a fount of all wisdom. The other reason, and then we can start talking about other things besides paralysis, but the other way that this induces paralysis is not just that you're waiting for one person to rule on everything. It's that also you are trying to seek maybe a religious solution to a thing that has a non-religious solution, okay? Or you, what that, what that means fairly concretely is that you are framing the problem in terms that make you incapable of answering the problem. So I'll give you an example that comes up frequently when I, when I talk to people just, I, I guess, by way of advice or something, is that they will have a difficulty with another person. It's usually in their church. That's why they're talking to me. They're not asking me usually about you know their insurance agency or something. But they have a difficulty with another person in their church, whether it's a pastor asking me about another pastor or whatever. And they will talk about the relationship exclusively in terms of sin and forgiveness. And so they're at an impasse and they're they're talking to me because they can't figure out how to frame the problem in terms of sin and forgiveness. Because those are the only dynamics they've been given for human relationships to each other. <laughs> Right. So in this case, I think they're using the wrong religious terms. It could be that they're using religious terms or a mistake that's frequently been made in the church in America is that they're using business terms to try to describe the church. But whatever it is, the way that they're framing it makes them incapable of answering it. And they know that, but they don't know how to frame it otherwise. So if I say, well, what are the, you know, what jobs do you each have? Or, does every word that didn't feel exactly right when you said it or he said it, does it have to be framed in terms of you did something identifiably wrong and you need to specifically confess it or can silence be used or can you understand where he's coming from with what he's saying or whatever, right? Just give them other terms. When you when you start to have a project that particularly unites civil and and ecclesial decision-making, but that also is meant to be in itself the embodiment of civilization as the Presidio was. This is Spain in this place. Then what you're going to get is usually one to two sets of terms. And the problem is you don't have one to two sets of solutions. So I like the Presidio and I encourage people to look it up. And there's a whole book just about how Presidios functioned because it is organized. And that's a problem that Anglo-Americans usually take a lot longer to figure out. I don't like the idea that we are going to have a chain of command that is going to claim jurisdiction over potentially anything, which you can see Lutherans almost reflexively think that way, even when structurally they shouldn't. 
and they behave that way even when structurally and theoretically they shouldn't for this reason that the claim to have a the claim to have authority really needs to be substantiated in that authority's life and works by actual competence so if i know that i'm actually incompetent i need to tell somebody that <laughs> because he needs to bring in his competence because it's not actually doing the group any good for anyone to pretend to be omnicompetent. No. But that happens over and over and over and over again in centralized decision structures or command structures when they are functioning really for the benefit of the one in charge and not for the benefit of those over whom he has charge, which is how they should function. Arrogance is a fickle beast. I am... Uh, There's so much good stuff in here, and what I really want is to find some good Lutheran-ish terms for Presidio and Covenant so we can see how our categories line up and or find biblical ones for them. But yeah. you, you said a lot of good stuff in there. So the, the bit yeah. about sin and forgiveness as the only framework for human relationships, I think that's, that is, that's gold um, and, and worth pondering on. I will look at it more, not only in my household relations. I, I can't tell you um, how many times I'm like, why do I feel like this person thinks I want them to apologize when I'm talking about the future and us trying to work on, you know, hitting the target together. Right. And, and somewhere yeah. in, in our life, um, you know, in my relationship, therefore at that point, clearly, uh, yeah. I've given the impression that we're talking about sin. Right. And so right. how do we, how do we find other frames? And, but then just, that's just one example of the much bigger idea you bring up, which is how many specialized corners of modern thought have missing pieces in the framework for talking about the rest of reality. (laughs) So you talked about the Civil War buff, right? Who knows everything about the Civil War, but they couldn't tell you anything else, right? And it's like we do that to uh, home economics, for goodness sakes, right? To to how to how to be a man and enter a room and be polite. There are just missing pieces, and people know that there's a puzzle, that there's a problem, but they don't have the words to begin to find the solution. And so I think that's huge. And so we're doing that now with church organization, right? With congregational leadership, uh, and with these this these two poles at least uh, of presidio and covenant. Um, yeah. One question now I have, and and yes, we don't need to spend much time on this, but like, I agree with you that as we look at what we do as Lutherans, we're definitely leaning presidio. But if we look at what our documents say, you mentioned confirmation and what like the words we're supposed to say are, and what when you take the the vows of ordination and all these things, we're yeah. a pretty heavy covenant people. I, I mean, the baptismal right. liturgy ain't no it ain't joking around at all about what you're to expect out of life. You know, we we have removed the exorcism, you know, but uh, yeah, some have put it back. Um, but it's it's not as if there isn't covenant in the heart and testament of the Lord's Supper. And yet there seems to be among our our living, moving being, oh, like a, a real lack of awareness of what that covenant means. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and, and a fear that it'll fall apart without going back to it, too. Like we're trying, we want to keep the buildings, but not the covenant. That's the weird thing to me. Yeah. And the idea that your life is defined by promises God has made to you and also in in the realm of the activity that you are given to do 
the promises that you have made to him that you are called to be in the confirmation verse, probably 73% of all Lutheran confirmants ever have, be thou faithful unto death, right? That's when you can tell the bastard was working hard, picking the confirmation verse. That's funny. I always hate the law ones, man. Don't give them a law one. I mean, I Look, we can go law gospel all day, and I'm a big fan of the book of Concord. But when it comes to like the one verse this kid's going to carry in his pocket the rest of his life, you tell him like, make sure you're good enough, kid. Like, come on, uh, give him something a little bit more like he has risen. But that's just, I don't want to say it's just me. That's where I'm at. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, your your point is is well taken that it's it's not that we have an absence of thinking about covenants in our practical church life. It is that covenants require, and this is, much of the drama of early New England history, covenants require attention. Ah. And systems don't, right? Systems can be maintained if there are a sufficient number of bureaucrats or something. Systems can be maintained without attention, especially the attention of the individual person, the individual Christian, the individual citizen or subject or whatever. They can be maintained without much attention and certainly much popular attention. And the difficulty there is that such systems, such bureaucratic systems, and I'm not saying that pejoratively, they just are bureaucratic. They're run by people, usually in offices that are physically and otherwise distant from the places that they affect. Such bureaucratic systems are, and I'm I'm trying to say this in just a neutral structural way, it's hard in English to say it, they are parasitic. That is, they live alongside some other organism. Okay. So the Presidio, for example, is parasitic on the wealth that is extracted not at that fortress to sustain it. And it's parasitic on the supply of soldiers from other places. And it needs to live on top of the continual agricultural provision that's going to be done, in this case, not not necessarily because the mission exists, but as a byproduct of the mission is is the the friars are going to move the Indians into agriculture. And then the soldiers are going to eat the food that those mission Indians raise. So such structures, and I'm not I'm not saying like they are therefore categorically bad. You just have to recognize almost as if this were biology, this particular, you know, organ this amoeba, this bird, this whatever lives on top of this larger organism that actually generates life. And therefore, it has no life if the underlying things don't have life. So the way to say this structurally in the case of the church is that the Roman Curia, the colleges and seminaries for the Lutherans, whatever else it is, those are, just speaking structurally, those are parasitic organizations. They reflect or don't reflect other things going on at the actual life-producing level, which in the case of a church, whether it's Roman Catholic or Lutheran or however hierarchical or non-hierarchical, is always happening locally. And so you can see that there are other, you could call them, if you don't want to call them parasitic, maybe you could call them peripheral. There are always peripheral things going on in the church. So, you know, there's a big meeting in Acts chapter 15. There's the con- there's the conference that Paul has with James when he comes back to Jerusalem. And we talked about that last time. And, and James and the other brothers in Jerusalem are saying, you know, this is kind of what you need to do if you're going to make it in Jerusalem. And 
So that's sort of Paul's personal version of Acts 15. Like, this is how we're going to have to live with each other to make this possible. There's all that stuff all happens and has to happen for people to remain interconnected to each other. So that's why I'm trying to use the word parasitic just in a non judgmental biological frame because you do need it. The problem is those structures are not in and of themselves life generating. So they don't, they don't have fonts, right? They don't have altars, or if they do, they're authorized by something else, this bishop, this congregation, whatever it is. And when you think about it that way, if the stuff underneath, or you could say the actual generation of life is not occurring, what is happening in the peripheral structure matters relatively little. So I'll give you a, a Presidio-specific example. You have in New Mexico in the late 17th century, so about the same time that they're getting up and going, the Swedes are, in the Delaware River Valley, the Spanish face this enormous revolt by the mission Indians or prospective mission Indians called the Pueblo Revolt. And for 12 years, that just drives them out of what is now New Mexico. So the upper Rio Grande River Valley, they're just gone. It's over. It doesn't mean that, you know, there, there weren't people who were willing to be bureaucrats or willing to, you know, count the crops harvested by the mission Indians or willing to catechize the mission Indians or willing to defend the friars. It was that the basic life model that was sustaining all of that, which is there are Indians who will want to live near a church and they will, you know, enjoy this and want to be part of this and put up with, you know, the failures and shortcomings of the system. Well, they didn't anymore. <laughs> they didn't want to do that. So, you know, there's a whole story about how that gets refounded starting in 1692. But the basic issue is that you have to realize a presidio might be impressive and in itself impregnable, but there's something that has to sustain it. And when the sustenance is gone, those kinds of structures honestly just go away of their own accord, right? The whole Spanish empire eventually is going to be like that. It will just go away. And so there are offices in Madrid that had, you know, been governing things since 1492 or earlier. And as of about 1898, it doesn't matter anymore, right? They're gone. So those those peripheral things can can and do go away when what is underneath them sustaining them, which is something that covenants are usually much better at doing because they ask you personally, do you care about this? Are you committed to this? Are you going to do anything about this? You, the individual person, they're generally just better at sustaining individual commitment. And so they are often more chaotic. And that's why we want to meld these things if we can. But they ensure that the individual human being actually believes I have a place in this. I'm invested in this. This matters to me in addition to whatever other structures exist on top of that. So I've been pondering parasitic. Uh, I did a little etymology search while you were, you were sharing there and uh, I knew that the para was going to be the Greek root you know, yeah. alongside of or beside. And I was like, what's this cidic coming from? Yeah. Like, it's kind of weird. And it's, well, it means bread. 
Except for it does. I mean, as Adam online just says, bread unknown root. <laughs> so, so we've decided that it means bread because we don't know what it means. Uh, so to to be a parasite, uh, to be alongside of the food. The other word that that jumped in my head that would be more of a positive connotation, similar idea, is symbiosis or symbiotic. Yeah, but that right. would imply that there is life in the para organization. So I think you're onto something there with the para, especially given the way that the 19 1980s exhibited a rise in the so-called para-church organizations of the non-denominational church bodies, Yeah, (laughs) right? Uh, So what others are doing in denominations, they're doing as para-churches, but it's the same concept, same root uh, prefix there, uh, alongside of but not actually the thing. And for some time now, I have thought of the Missouri Synod as a para-church organization. I found that very helpful, actually, just for clarifying the relationship of the body to the, the body of the congregation, which is the, the proper form of the church and all this. So, so I think your, your, your language here or your, your language diving is, is really helpful and really clarifying. Um, I don't know that there's a way to get away from the negative connotation. I mean, symbiotic would make it sound really nice, um, but it's it's not quite. It's, it is reflective, but the life has to come from the congregation, and then right. the para-organization that occurs between congregations, um, that f- lives from those lower congregations, but it begins to, if it begins to feed on them as if its life mattered more than them, yes. then it's going to eat its own feet, right? Uh, right. Over time. Right. And so if you think about this in a case where it, it's very, it, it's, it's posited as a symbiotic relationship at best, right? In the Roman Catholic Church, where the structure is supposed to be divinely mandated, right? As such with a relationship really only fluctuating between the Pope and the bishops, theoretically. And then, but you have a bishop, you have a church. And so then they're going to read that back into Ignatius's letters, right? As if a bishop in his time is exactly whatever, right? doesn't matter. <laughs> but what you can see Hold on, is, just for all the Roman Catholic yeah. listeners, I just get whatever. Was what... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, the, because because the issue here is that when symbiosis is claimed, you you basically have to lie about certain things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is that you have to pretend that if you have an option between getting rid of, you know, this entire diocese of Catholics who go to mass every Sunday in Lincoln, Nebraska versus getting rid of the papacy, that one of them is actually inside the mandate of Jesus Christ and say Acts 1-8, and the other one is not. And so you end up telling yourself that Acts 1-8 is ultimately somehow about the papacy. Like, Jesus cannot accomplish his reign upon earth without the papacy, without whatever institution you want to supply that is actually parasitic, or if you want to say parabiotic, if you want to just, I mean, it's a neologism, I think, so, but it makes a little more sense. You're, you're, you're essentially lying. Now you're you're lying for really good reasons, and you and you're lying to yourself probably too. So you're not you're not just doing this to hoodwink other people. It's not always that cynical, but you do have to lie to yourself about what is actually necessary or what could in fact go away or change form or whatever. And that's that's also because this is where we're definitely not Roman Catholic is that these various systems are so mutable, changeable over time, it's not even funny. Now, at any given time, 
the people inside that system might tell themselves, this is the only way things could ever be, right? So Lutherans in America, for example, have <laughs> told themselves for a long time that, you know, this way, this sort of Jeffersonian interpreted way of relating church and state is the actual intention of the scriptures, is the actual intention of Martin Luther, is the actual intention of the Lutheran confessions. <laughs> I don't really think that's historically sustainable, but I'm trying to pick on us and not just Roman Catholics to say that it's very, very, very easy for people inside a certain parabiotic structure, parasitic structure, presidio structure, to tell yourself that that structure is the only way things could be structured. Whereas certain things that God actually sets up, like this font inducts you both into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and into this congregation that has this pastor or these pastors who have this responsibility over you. That stuff never actually changes because it just kind of can't because church is at a certain human scale by divine design, you know, that you you receive baptism, you personally. You receive Holy Communion, you personally, right? Because of that scale question, that doesn't ever really change. You know, you're baptized in the same way that somebody was in Ignatius's church and in the 15th century and in the 4th century and now. So that's one way that you can tell what is actual, what is the actual source of life are the things that actually do not change. Because if you don't want to lie to yourself, you're going to have to admit that almost everything else changes. Almost everything else changes, especially with human systems like governments and churches that, where a lot is at stake for very powerful, intelligent, ambitious people in whose best interest it always is to tell you that there's no other way this could be. Now, the reason that this is especially pertinent to the listeners is because you probably listen to this because you're aware that various systems that we have, church, state, education, are failing or have failed. They're, they're falling apart. I'm saying that's not an accident because they're not, they're not meant to, sometimes, they're always not capable of sustaining themselves. If the life that sustains them is not there, then they're, they're just going to go away, right? In the same way that met most of you probably were, were not all that aware of the you know, project of New Sweden, right? Or who was there or that they were Lutherans or whatever. So the Lutherans in New Sweden, um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I, there, there, there's, there's so many ways that I think I could, um, yeah, uh, troll us as hard as you tro trolled our, our Catholic friends, um, with regard to the ways that that colony fell apart. I mean, I can imagine that, you know, once everyone got there, they refused to get off their online um, bickering and continued to do so, even in the small community that they were in until eventually the crops didn't come in or something to that effect, but in a more medieval sense. Um, or, or you could have the one where they begin excommunicating each other right away. But then, I don't know, just the, the, the other side of it is... Uh, how do you survive anywhere in that time period, right? You know, any of these colonies was up against so many factors that it didn't matter who you are, I think. You probably had uh, complexities of, of weather and time and hostilities yeah. uh, that, that just made it a crapshoot for who got through when and what. But, but it is interesting that the Lutherans have just never actually gone anywhere, done anything much, really, right? Like, that's, that's interesting. 
it's weird. Yeah, I mean, th- there are there are a couple exceptions, but they're going to come later. And as far as going anywhere, it's partly because you don't have after the Swedish Empire collapses, you don't have a Lutheran nation of any particular power or pertinence until the unification of Germany, which does develop colonies. So one of your most, demographically speaking, most Lutheran places in the world is Namibia, which was German Southwest Africa. So both whites and blacks in Namibia tend to be Lutheran at a proportion that outpaces America um, Mm -hmm. in that regard. So you you do have things like this. I think one of the reasons that I have been pretty critical of the Presidio idea, especially as being native to our group at large, is because it is it is a good way to resolve inside internal systemic problems. So who's supposed to make this decision? Whose job is that? Right. And and you develop an authority structure and that solves the problem of Conflicts that occur in any human group of any size, even two people, a marriage, um, a business partnership, whatever, right? They're good systems. They're they're good structures for difficulty in a group that's already constituted and not going to go away. So we all agree that we're Spanish soldiers, or we all agree that we're we're Swedish colonists, and we all agree that we're Roman Catholics, or we all agree we're Lutherans, and and how are we going to structure that? That's great, Okay. It's not good when that group and or individuals, so let's say that you are in a great Lutheran church right now, but you are essentially mentally a complete slave because you're going to lose your job if you stop being a slave. Now, are you actually supposed to live that way? Can you live that way? Could you do something else with your life? Do you want to do something else? These are all things that the group should help you with, but it's also something to consider that the notion of a covenant is much more powerful for the individual, both motivating him, but also guiding him as to where this is going. Is this going anywhere? Or the group has just arrived at perfection. It's why groups that are heavily structured will tend to pretend that they've never changed on anything. Because it's kind of hard to. Whereas a covenant doesn't entail that I'm infallible, it just entails that God is faithful to me, and there are certain terms for that, for church or my marriage or whatever, right? So if you have that, and this is where the frontier is so important in Anglo-American history, if you have that, then the frontier is going to naturally push you towards a more internally motivated rather than externally authorized model of action. Precisely for the reason that the guy who is somewhere behind you, the other side of the ocean, on the seaboard, wherever he is, he doesn't know and he can't fix it for you. So if you want to wait for the guy down in Mexico City to tell you what to do about the Comanches who are two days away, reportedly, then you can do that, but it's not going to do you any good. So if we only had internal problems, then I wouldn't be talking about being internally, that is personally motivated. Since our systems do not themselves generate life and the things that do are, are themselves threatened. So people could say, 
oh, I don't like what's going on in the Missouri Senate. I don't like this. I don't like that. But, but much more rarely, but much more tragically, do people say, my church is disappearing, or my church is going away, or we don't have any churches here, or whatever. Those things that actually generate life, in the case of a church, it's a local church. In the case of a society, it's the immediate family, right? Mom and dad and the kids. That doesn't mean there's nothing else going on. It just means if that's not happening, like if mom and dad aren't even married or if they are married, they're not having children, then it doesn't matter that there are lots of other things that mean family in an extended sense, aunts, uncles, grandparents, because that family is going to be over soon. So you need some kind of internal motivation to keep things going, especially when you are the only one who is actually going to fix this problem because this is your marriage or you are 200 miles away from the closest help or whatever the case may be. You need personal motivation, a personal sense of both God's faithfulness and your also your call to faithfulness on your part to take care of that problem. That's not a problem that the guy, however well-intentioned or however good an administrator he is or whatever, can solve for you from far away. So what, what do I do with this? I mean, as a pastor, I'm thinking, all right, this is cool. We got these covenants that we we have, we recite. We could teach toward those more. Obviously, I, I think obviously Lutheran pastors preach toward baptism. We, we preach toward the Lord's Supper as uh eschatological inbreakings of the kingdom of God at the very present moment, right? And, and yeah. up and down and whatnot. So that's all there. But, and this is where maybe that earlier little tidbit about law and gospel does come back around and, and uh, the specter has to raise its head a little. Um, the covenantal process of uh, both membership, uh, the baptismal rite, uh, and and uh, um, confirmation, all, all of which is leading to the Lord's Supper, uh, that entails certain commitments from the individual as well as from the congregation to the individual. Yeah. And that is not something I think we have been comfortable emphasizing in any way uh, as, a, as a whole, as a, what you call it, a parabiotic organization, uh, yeah. group, movement for for some time and uh you know we're, we're all on the the baptism now saves you and let the reader understand it does uh but it saves you unto uh unto what and that this walk that we are called into as you've pointed out is filled with inspiration with uprightness uh with peace with all manner of things that we can actually tell people as promises <laughs> yeah. from the holy spirit right um uh but this, how do I say this? Uh, waxing eloquently about the theory of law and gospel does not produce this kind of uh, lively faith. Uh, quite the opposite. You must have law and gospel rightly distinguished from each other, which means from time to time, you have to tell people what good is. It's just going to have to be good. And, right. Yeah. I mean, it's Jesus so, too. Yeah. There I yeah. went. There I went and did the Lutheran thing. It's Jesus too. But like, um, Jesus did it so that I'm here now. I'm not going to do it like he did it perfectly, but I'm not going to do it opposite of the way he did it. <laughs> you know, dear Jesus, please no. You know, let, let me do it right. Right. And we're here for that. And and that covenant that you're talking about, Adam, it, like we have it. Lutherans, we got it. That's what we are. That's all we are. 
And yet we're we're out there arguing about oh man, I don't even want, want to tell you all the different fixes, all the different so, fixes. I I think that one way to one way to gauge whether this is working well is that you would respect the fact that if if someone has been called into Christ, then he has certain callings that Christ has given him where he has prepared good works beforehand that he should walk in them. And those good works are not going to vary as to, you know, we're going to do completely opposite things in our lives, but the way that the fruit of the spirit is expressed is going to vary by my vocation and my time of life and lots of other things. If I recognize that, then I can also recognize that I am not omnicompetent. And I, I do not think that we have been able to foster that sense because we have expressed the Christian life as if it is precisely the same for everybody. And part of this is the flatness of our preaching. So it always does sound the same in our sermons. But part of it too, and this is more on a collective level that this is recognizable, is the squashing of individual efforts. Okay. You talked about the suspicion of YouTube. Well, there could be suspicion of lots of things, right? This is one of the difficulties that we are facing right now because we have outside the system problems affecting both us individually and the systems that we've already created. And then people are trying to find outside the system solutions. So this is the college. This is the topics we're allowed to discuss on the internet with each other. This is lots of things, right? And if your initial reaction is just to shut it all down, then what you're actually saying is, you know, that's wrong to do. This is not how Paul behaves. So Paul is definitely doing something worthwhile and people are definitely criticizing it and he has to defend it even before the rest of the church. But I don't bring this up to say like, uh, Paul is your model and it's just going to be hard. I bring it up to say, so remind yourself that Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem, the, you know, the, what is it? Maybe the fourth time, but it's the second extended narrative of it in Acts. He doesn't go to Jerusalem and talk to James and be like, well, that's just your opinion. And uh, we already decided this and I don't have to pay for these four guys to be under a vow or to give an offering at the temple. Like that's stupid. This isn't what we talked about already. He just goes along with it. And our confessions actually bring that up as a great example of acquiescence that preserves unity. Mm, yeah, it's great. Okay. Yeah. Because, it, you know, it's it's like he's not pretending to know how to run the church in Jerusalem. He's going along with what these guys think is the wisest course of action for what they're trying to do. And that's great. So that his problem in Jerusalem doesn't end up being his fellow Christians. So I think people were kind of confused when we talked about unity a couple episodes back, partly because <laughs> we never talk about it, but also partly because unity is not something that anyone who believes he's not really under threat cares that much about. Infighting is a luxury. I mean, if you want to shoot at other people in the same trench as you, you can do that. But if you recognize that you're in a trench and that there are guys in an opposite trench who want to kill you, then maybe you won't be shooting at the guys that are wearing the same uniforms as you. So this is something where the, the question of personal motivation 
personal accountability. What what am I actually doing that is building up the unity of the church, of my family, of whatever? Matters a lot more, finally, than you know what great ideas Paul may have had for how the Jerusalem church should have fixed everything. But he wasn't he wasn't the bishop there. He wasn't the guy. It wasn't his job to do that. And so he didn't try to do that. He tried instead to keep the bond of unity, right? So this is something where I think a covenant model is much better at motivating people because it's much more respectful of the fact that we all have different callings. That doesn't mean that we have nothing to say about each other's callings. There's no admonition that can be offered, whatever, but it does mean that none of us is to himself an island. I think maybe the internet convinces us that we do know a lot about an enormous range of things and therefore could comment on practically anything. But I assure you from people just who comment on Pastor Fisk or me that you you don't know everything. I don't know everything. He doesn't know everything. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, you might want to consider that, that this this person is himself accountable to God and try to help him be more accountable, try to help him be more faithful, try to help him be more fruitful in his calling, rather than thinking, what is he doing wrong and how could I be doing it better? Which is basically the way a bureaucrat thinks, because he could take that guy's job and probably get paid more. But he should us be slow to speak, quick to listen. You're listening to Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people 
at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.